Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. That's... Yeah. They have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I'm to walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. What are you doing down here, you shiny man? For the last, I don't know, 10, 15, 20 years, fans of the Republic of Ireland football team have fretted over the dwindling representation of Premier League players in our national side. How can we hope to compete internationally if we barely have anyone playing regularly in the top flight anymore, goes the argument. But maybe, just maybe... We've been looking at this all wrong this entire time. Where's the joy really in being a solid performer for a lower mid-table Premier League team when you could be out there lighting it up in a whole range of other competitions from the Championship to League One to, yes, the bloody Papa John's Trophy Final. Welcome to Monday's Football Podcast. Hi, Ken. Hi, Kieran. Hey there, Owen. How's it going? I saw a lot more of the Papa John's uh, Cup Final than I thought I would. <laughs> I mean, I d- I d- I'm pretty sure it didn't make Francis Murphy's TV guide last. I don't Friday, think it did. No, which no. is a bit of an oversight now, given the well, yeah, maybe the new but star listen, of Irish football know, is in there. She's 73 years old, for God's sake. Thank you, <laughs> Ken. I know you're going to tell me about Matt Doherty. I'm sure, uh, who is one of our the, one of our dwindling representation mm. in the Premier League and was unbelievable again uh. this weekend. But P- Papa John Trophy. Is a competition played between teams in League One and League Two, the final of which took place at Wembley SA. Rotherham's manager Paul Warren was reportedly about to go over and shake the hand of the Sutton United manager before Jadose Ogbene, the brightest spark in the current rejuvenation of the Irish team, first of all set up a late equaliser to take it extra time, where Ogbene himself unleashed a screamer to set them on their way to a 4-1 win to keep his incredible week going. But it wasn't only Ogbene doing the business in the Championship Michael Obafeme, remember him? Well, he was actually, you would remember him because he was in the news very recently for apparently not being interested in a call-up to the under-21s. You see, Jim Crawford, the under-21 manager, mm. said, well, no, he's not in there because he, he sees himself as a senior international, is what he's told us. So mm, there was a bit of commentary about that. Should he maybe play for the under-21s if, if that's the, the call he gets? But anyway, he's too busy banging them in for Swansea. He scored twice for Swansea in the South Wales Derby as a smash card of 4-0 this is a weird bit of history in the process. I've had to double and triple check this. It's the first time in the 110-year history of this rivalry that either club has done a league double in the same season. Wow. True. Yeah. I mean, they haven't always been in the same division, obviously. Right. But it is true, Ken, because that's, you know, I knew you would say that. And then I would say, oh, well, I think it's true. I better check it. So I did check it. A couple of different sources. And this, this seems to be the case. So they're kind of loving him in Swansea. He scored eight goals in 11 games now. Uh, in the last 11 games, he started kind of slowly, but but he's, he's kicking on now. His manager, there's always there's always something about this, about Obafeme's attitude. It's either very, very good or, hmm, he needs to improve his attitude. There's, there's always been kind of question marks about this. But Russell Martin says, I put it down to him finding a level of consistency in his daily approach to accept criticism and be honest with me and his teammates. He's dropped his guard and been himself, just worked really hard, good at attitude, and the rest comes with that. So it's all happening. It's all happening for the Ireland internationals. And <sighs> maybe a, a soon to be... Uh, return to the Ireland squad, Michael Abafemi. Mm. Uh, I believe one of his, he, uh, he was celebrating one of his goals in a manner which angered Cardiff City fans. I believe is that correct? 
he was doing a sw- uh, a, a flying gesture. Swimming. Oh, uh, swimming, swimming gesture. That's exactly what it is. I'm sorry. And what what's the what what, what exactly did that mean? I saw uh, tweets about this, but I didn't actually understand. Ken, help me to understand. I only saw. I mean, apparently, uh, a bunch of Swansea fans threw a, a bunch of Cardiff fans in the sea once, and then challenged them to swim away. So that's what they've been oh. doing ever since. Uh, why don't you swim away? And so that's what Abafemi okay. did. So, uh, you know, I guess it sort of um, antagonizes the fans a little bit. To be honest, I'm, I'm struggling to get too worked up about the Cardiff fans being offended by this gesture by uh, Michael Obafemi. I don't know what it is. I just sort of feel as though, like, my, my standards in terms of the offense that I take at video that I see on the internet has changed uh, quite a lot over the, last, <laughs> over the last few weeks. Angry, pompous old man. Um, Takes a lot to shock you now. You know, I saw old Ange Postacoglu. Uh, the victorious Celtic manager, you know, Celtic won at at uh, Ibrox. Uh, we got to hear that that wonderful sound of a Celtic goal going in at Ibrox, which sounds like the whole stadium has been dipped into the water. Like <laughs> the stadium's been dipped underwater, and that's you just there's this sudden muffling. Um, as uh, a Celtic, uh, you can hear the individual Celtic players cheering there in their goal celebration. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, old Ange, possibly, there, there was the, the match was delayed while everyone was out. Like you know, you know the way you sometimes see that rare side of people looking for a contact lens on the pitch. Well, they were, <laughs> instead they were all looking for pieces of broken glass because apparently, like someone had smuggled glass into the stadium into Ibrox and had thrown glass, and the glass was broken. There was broken glass on the pitch, so it's obviously you know it's, it's no good. Have to get that glass. Um, and uh, Ange Postacoglu, after the game, was saying, you know, it is disappointing. You know, this is, this is a game that's beamed all over the world. And, you know, for people to be throwing bottles, you know, it's, it's very disappointing. And I just thought to myself, Ange, you know, don't beat yourself up too much about this. Um, <laughs> like, no one's really that bothered about a few bottles being thrown at Ibrox. I mean, I don't know, maybe maybe it's the broken window theory, you know, the broken bottle theory. You know, if we, if we allow... Uh, bottles, glass bottles thrown on the pitch at Ibrox. What next? Full scale invasion of uh, you know, you know, with I mean, well, well, glass bottles themselves, in and of themselves, can be pretty dangerous when thrown as missiles. Let's let's be let's be fair about that. Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's obviously it's it's not it's not good, and it's just I suppose uh, uh, I'm just trying to assign it its its correct place in the hierarchy of mm. terrible things I've seen on the internet this weekend. Okay, sounds like you've had a hell of a weekend, Ken. We have got the Champions League quarterfinals coming up this week. Benfica, Liverpool, City, Atletico, there to choose the games. Chelsea, Real Madrid's on Wednesday, so that'll keep us ticking over on the World Service. You can sign up to listen to our coverage of those games on secondcaptains.com for €5 Euro a month. Plus VAT. It's a whole new way of doing journalism. It's brilliant. Today, Miguel is going to join us. Miguel Delaney was at the World Cup draw in Qatar. He tweeted on the way over that it's worth addressing one of the comments that comes up frequently. Of course, journalists are going. The job is to report. And the fundamental of reporting is going, looking and talking to people. Journalists, as a rule, shouldn't boycott events. So we'll hear what he what he's observed so far while he was there for the draw. First of all, Ken, you're going to report on some sport. Yeah, the draw. I mean, who could forget... Um uh, I was watching the draw on Friday evening. On. I don't know if you were. I don't know if you had the pleasure. Um, Do you know what, Kent? I'm. I. Th- I think thankfully, maybe I, I miss a lot of the early. Uh, the so I basically turned it on about half five. It still hadn't happened yet. It had been going on from five o'clock. Mm. I, I'd sort of forgotten about it in in you know in the midst of sort of brain switching into weekend mode um, mm. but then I don't know what that means I mean I was, I was working in Premier Sports on Saturday sounds like I was going on a 48 hour bender there the way I set that one up but basically yeah. I just kind of forgot about it then turned it on and then because then, I'd seen people giving out that the, the draws it hasn't happened and I was like oh I forgot about the draw turned it on still had about 15 minutes of waffle to get through before actually seeing who was going to be playing whom yeah, um, and did you see the uh, the launch of the mascot from the mascot? I know oh, I saw Miguel talking about this. So, so tell me about this. Laib is the uh, official mascot for the first FIFA World Cup in the Middle East. Uh, he is a, I guess it's, he's like a sort of a cartoon manta ray, mm-hmm. uh, wearing uh, you know kafia, and uh, turns out that he's actually. Um, been doing it all all along um uh he's he's been there you know like in the song um 
Sympathy for the devil. You know how how he's always there, like the devil is always. You know, this, this the whole song was about like uh, I was there when this happened. I was there. I was there when that happened. Um, I was around when Jesus Christ had his moment of doubt and pain. You know, stuck around St. Petersburg when I saw it was time for a change. Killed the Tsar and his ministers. Anastasia screamed at me. You know, all that stuff. Well, Abe has basically been like this, but like more benign. <laughs> and, you know, instead of um, it's sort of inspiring all the evil in the world, he's actually been scoring all the great goals in the World Cup throughout history. You thought it was Diego Maradona, Pelé. You thought, you know, uh, these guys, uh, Puskas, what not. Had, had been uh, banging them in. But actually, it was Laib. Uh, mm. He was there. Uh, like he, a football zelig. Yeah, but, but more more active. Instead of simply being seen there. Well, you see, Present the thing is... There, he, yeah, because yeah, Zelig was always seen. He was always... Was like, what's, what's he doing in the photo? Well how, you know, well, how did he get there? No one has ever seen Laib until now uh, because we haven't been able to communicate with the mascot first, he's which I suppose... Been, he's always been there, Ken. Nobody had seen him play. No, yeah, no, no, yeah, nobody had seen it. Everybody knew about it. Well, actually, nobody knew about him. Nobody <laughs> knew about him, and nobody had seen him. But he, <laughs> but he was there in the mascot verse. Which both which, of our analogies just fell flat there. Old, we just we just can't ca- quite capture the magic of this mascot. <laughs> oh, well, that's you know, the, that just, is it, the magic. It defies exactly. It defies. Exactly. It defies uh, understanding. Definition. It does. It really does. Uh, we are sure. He comes from the mascot verse, says Khalid Ali Al-Malawi, Deputy Director of General Marketing, Communications and Tournament Experience, Supreme Committee for Delivery and Legacy. That's the man's job title. He says, we are delighted to unveil Laqib as the official mascot for the first FIFA World Cup in the Middle East in our world. He comes from the mascot verse, a place that is indescribable. <laughs> we encourage everyone to imagine what it looks like. Oh. I'll tell you what it looks like. It looks like the uh, Facebook metaverse. Uh, in the, as you may have seen in you know that sort of ad that did the rounds a little while ago, mm-hmm. um, you know where you've got like cartoon sort of creatures going around and like for some reason it's basically like the office but everyone is a cartoon, mm-hmm. and uh, and he's we're confident that fans everywhere will love this fun and playful character. I believe Owen, I believe Laib is the worst mascot yet invented. Well, I mean, I know he hasn't, wasn't strictly about it. He's he's been there all along. And actually, there was a, there was an interesting um, kind of a slightly ideological uh, slant to what what was what Laib was saying, wasn't it? Was he, he? I'm I'm I'm. This is from memory of seeing the video that he that he did from that he broadcast from the metaverse with like FIFA's director of like pop or whatever. Mm-hmm. FIFA have got like a a commissar in charge of picking tunes. Uh, for you know what's what what are we going to play at the opening ceremony? And this was the guy who was accompanying Laib in the mascot verse, and they were kind of talking about like where football came from, and like um, you know I want I I really I don't want to be like some kind of a an old school you know Anglo colonialist right or you know I, far be it from far be it for me to be charged with Anglo centrism, you know. But let me just say that I think football actually was invented by the English mm-hmm. <laughs> in the nineteenth century. We'll but according to according to Laib, uh, it kind of is part of like the rhythms of the universe. Football has sort of come to us. It's part of the vibrations of the universe, like music or color. We're now getting to that point now where we are inspiring. You know, which you know, it's it's been there for that. People have played it for like a thousand years or whatever, because everybody sort of instinctively knows. And I was like, I don't know. I actually don't know. I mean, I, I kind of feel like that's, you know, and, and it's not often known on this on this podcast that I say this, but I feel as though that was a bit disrespectful to to the the English or the British as they should be in this context, mm. um, you know, just to sort of whitewash their role and in actually inventing the game just seemed like a little really. Are we, is is picking Jermaine Genus as for some reason as the as the MC of this event enough yeah. to compensate for the for what you're. Uh, I don't know. So as Jermaine Genus was the was the because I saw a lot of uh, people talking about Idris Elba's involvement. He was there. oh Idris Elba. Well, I well like Jermaine, I mean Idris Elba was there, but like then he was gone as soon as he arrived. And to be honest, I I I uh, started following the initial following it initially on the national our national broadcaster, which was a mistake because um, they were showing all the nonsense. No, no, uh, they weren't showing it. Like this, oh, well, the, the, like I mean, I, I was watching it actually on the RTE player, 
And mm. so um, Idris Elba and uh, Rajman Chowdhury had been sort of introduced as the hosts. I mean, they again, they were just the hosts of like one little section and Jermaine Genus kind of came out and he was like the, the main host of the business. Carly Lloyd, Samantha Johnson, they, they were pre- presenting this. But um, basically... Idris and Reshman introduced uh, Laabe and then they introduced the song and then RT player just cut to like you know you know that that thing they put on it's, it's so they, were, they were like cutting to ads apparently and like you know by the time I could get the computer correctly configured to show me uh, the BBC feed <laughs> it was uh, I'd missed the, I, I haven't even seen this song I don't know why you would do that. Why would you show a World Cup draw and not show like the the grotesque um, cultural elements that FIFA have have concocted? Like, I mean, that's that's surely the whole point of watching this event. Uh, but instead, we they they were cutting away to ads that I didn't even get to see. So, ah, uh, yeah. that's a pity. So you're getting you're giving the mascot the thumbs down anyway. Before we get into the deeper geopolitical questions and so forth with with Miguel, the the big one is whether or not you like the mascot. I didn't like the mascot. I I thought the idea was creepy. I I thought it was interesting that they said it in the metaverse. Um, I assume that there's a commercial uh, reason for that, which will become clear in time. Um, You know, for now, the metaverse, it's it's just that we've established contact with it for the first time. We know it's there. Uh, But who knows? Perhaps trading links uh, will soon uh, be established between this dimension and that so that's something we'll have to watch out for um the actual draw itself i mean you know they fifa now kind of seed the draw in such a way as to kind of militate against any of the initial groups being too sexy you know what i mean like they've um it's it's a totally seeded draw rather than a kind of a um a geographically decided draw which which gave you the possibility of of big teams uh, you know kind of being thrown in together with each other um that maybe happened to some extent with the spain group yeah i was going to say spain and germany being drawn together would be two of the two of the more two of the bigger names in the same group yeah um well they're playing against japan and the Concacaf ofc winner which is going to be either costa rica or new zealand so um, yeah, it's. I mean, I wouldn't be too worried about Spain or Germany's prospects of of qualifying from the group. Uh, I mean, if we look through it, Qatar are in there with Ecuador, Senegal, and Netherlands. They did have Qatar against Ecuador as the opening game of the World Cup, but that got changed. Um, it's now, I think, the third game. You see, the the group stage is, is proceeding on like a four match per day basis because they've got to they've got to squeeze it into even less time, you know, than usual. They've they've got to try and burn through the group stage pretty fast. Um, so yeah, I mean, uh, maybe Miguel can explain exactly why that happened. I mean, obviously, Qatar against Ecuador didn't sound like that ex- that exciting mm-hmm. game. Um, although, you know, it's been I think since two thousand and six, it's been the the host who gets things underway. Is that right? Um, it used to be like the champions. Yeah, well, Argentina, Cameroon is the one that always sticks out in many mm. of our heads, largely because Italian ninety cent zero. Yeah, yeah. It still takes up about fifty percent of my brain. So France, yeah. <laughs> France against Senegal. That was a wasn't that an opening game as well in two thousand two um, when Senegal beat yes. France. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. Um, but but I remember Germany beating Costa Rica in the first game in two thousand six. So that must have been when they changed it to the host nation. But obviously they've they've sort of changed it back. It's actually going to be Netherlands against Senegal. Um, England are in, well, you know, reasonably interesting group with Iran, the United States, and one of either Scotland, Wales, or Ukraine, um, which is we'll going to create some interesting matchups, although not one that, not, not one that you know, seems to create a, an immediate danger of England being no. There's a lot. There's a lot tournament. of everyone talking about how easy it was, and then there's been s- somewhat of a backlash to that, saying, "Well, actually, it won't be that easy," but it's still a group you could. You could see them. I saw Rob Green tweeting, uh, tweeting the draw with the United States, just the you know the eyes looking sideways emoji, because mm. that was yeah. the scene of his howler uh, in the 2010 World Cup, that, yes. that particular fixture. So that does show you. That I just think that England are seem to be a much better organized team than they were around then. Um, they're all just yeah, headphones going deep in major tournaments. So you would you would you would assume they're going to negotiate their way through that group yeah. that way. Yeah, I suppose they could keep going. They could keep going deep in these tournaments. All right. Yeah. 
Um, they could. They could. That could keep happening. Um, Argentina, Saudi Arabia, Mexico, and Poland. I mean, Argentina, Mexico. Um, was that a rematch? Was that one of the rematch games from the last World Cup? Certainly they played each other in 2010 uh, and 2006, I think. Uh, France against Denmark is another... Ugh, I remember going to see that one in the Luzhniki <sighs> Stadium in Moscow. Um, the most boring game of the last World Cup. Um, they <laughs> That are, entire group... Uh, yes, sorry, give us their group here. Yeah, they're in with the um, AFC uh, versus Conmebol... Uh, winners so that's the team from uh, asia versus peru so that's either the united arab emirates or australia or peru so the uae and australia have to play in june and then the winner of that will play peru uh, to see who the fourth team is in the group that already includes france peter carroll is not happy with this with these groups at all he says in, in russia 2018 france denmark peru and australia were drawn in group c and offered some of the dullest world cup group games in my lifetime so i'm not overly excited by the prospect of france denmark oh, Tunisia, that... and maybe peru or australia in the yeah. same group here now in fairness peter also he seems to think there's some sort of um something going on here something fishy going on he wonders why qatar have such a cushy group which i don't actually agree with in qatar's group considering they were top seeds they could have well, done I mean, they a lot better Kushuk. yeah they've got the that african Kushuk champions group. and they've got the netherlands in their group that's not no not I mean, easy that's not, there, not that's not cushy at all no. really no i mean uh, there's they've uh, winnable there's he didn't say cushy in fairness he did say a winnable group well it's winnable mm. if, if i don't know i haven't seen much of the qatar national team well i've seen a little bit of them actually and from yeah. what i've seen they're gonna have to play above what i've <laughs> seen them so far to to pull off a uh, win in this particular yeah. group. You're going to get a cushy draw if you're in pot one and you're Qatar. You know what I mean? Like, it's it's going to look, it's going to look a lot easier than it could have been yeah. if you're in any pot other than pot one. No, I don't think, um, I don't think they're going to come through that. Brazil, Serbia, Switzerland, Cameroon. That's again a, a World Cup 2018 group. Three three quarters of, a, of the 2018 World Cup group that included Brazil, they were also in with Serbia. A match that I was Maybe the group with the most depth, that one. I mean, we've, we've seen Serbia, pretty good side, for example. Serbia, Switzerland, Cameroon. Yeah, well, I mean, you, you you wouldn't necessarily be surprised with any of these teams coming through. Maybe Cameroon, um, given the competition. But yeah, it's 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 pretty strong. Although you still think Brazil will, will get through that. Um, Brazil. Oh, sorry. The last group is uh, more World Cup rematches. Portugal against South Korea. Uh, that was a great one in two thousand and two. Luis Figo trying to explain, no, no, we both get through if we just simply <laughs> draw. Calm down, everybody. And the South Koreans just staring at him with contempt and then knocking him out, knocking him out of the World Cup. Uh, Ghana against Uruguay. Uh, that was a, that was another famous one. Portugal-Uruguay, I think they played in the last World Cup, um, didn't they, with Cavani and Suarez knocking Portugal out in the second round. So, uh, yeah, it's, um, that's that. Look, we'll, we'll talk to Miguel about the, uh, the sort mm-hmm. of, the off-draw stuff, the not the non-ball-related Qatar stuff. Um, so what else is going on? Well, there was yeah. Well, I mentioned Netherlands are going to open the World Cup against Senegal. Um, some bad news there with Louis van Gaal announcing that he has an aggressive form of prostate cancer. Mm. Um, van Gaal, who is the Dutch manager again, uh, I mean he's managed them before, <clears throat> most recently in the 2014 World Cup where they uh, finished third. Um, but he is, uh, yeah, he's 70 years old now and he said he's, he's, there's a film coming out, like a kind of biographical film about him. And he was doing an interview last night on Dutch television to promote this. And this is when he revealed that he's been having treatment for what he describes as an aggressive form of prostate cancer, uh, in each period during my time as manager of the national team, but during the international breaks, basically, as he's been the, the, Dutch coach, I have to, I've had to leave in the night to go to the hospital without the players finding out until now while thinking I was healthy, but I'm not. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, it's really awful. Obviously, he, he Van Hal continues to work, and um, you know, you just hope that his his treatment goes well. Uh, he still seems to be uh, in pretty good form. I mean, you know, he's he's actually been even for Louis Van Hal uh, unusually uh, forthright. In uh, recent times, remember his uh, well. Obviously, uh, FIFA said they're going to Qatar to spread the game around. It's total bullshit. Well, it's just all about. Do you money. know what it's I was thinking? That when I saw Davin Hall news last night, I was thinking uh, exactly that. He seems to he seems to have been in sparkling Louis Van Hal type form lately. For yeah, he's he's, he's not holding back anymore. No, no, it's it's like I've I've never spoken my mind before. Says the most forthright <laughs> manager ever in Louis Van Hal. So now I'm, I'm yeah. really going to start giving what for. Yeah. 
I'm sick of tiptoeing around the issues, says Ivan Hall. Uh, no way should Eric should uh, Eric Ten Hag um, uh, become Manchester United manager. It's not a football club. It's a commercial club. He should join a football club. Uh, I saw Ralph Rangnick uh, had to uh, defend the honour of Manchester United against this accusation mm-hmm. uh, by pointing out, well, you know, in, in fairness, the Premier League is very commercialised and there's a lot of commercial businesses here. And even Al himself was manager here not long ago. So, you know, uh, steady on. Uh, that was before the news came out, though, about uh, Van Hal's illness. So, I'm sorry, I might have cut across it about the, the World Cup. He was basically, you know, he was saying that this whole thing of it being to develop football in Qatar is bullshit. It's about commercial yeah. interests and that sort of That's all which is a pretty, is. which is pretty, you know, uh, it, obviously a lot of people can say that, but when you're the manager of one of the teams there, it's slightly more notable that you're saying it. Mm, yeah. Um, so what else is going on? Um, there was this whole issue of uh, well, the Premier, the Premier League. There was this whole issue of Frank Lampard, which we've been obviously watching with interest. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it was a uh, uh, Lampard was was back at one of his old stomping grounds, West Ham. Um, not well, he never stomped around the Olympic Stadium uh, as a West Ham player. They used to play somewhere else, but uh, the fans still remember him. And uh, as Everton manager, it was probably one of the less pleasant experiences he's had among a menu of extremely unpleasant experiences as Everton manager. To lose at West Ham and to lose with another red card. And of course, uh, everybody, everybody wondered, uh, having, uh, having, had, having endured all of these singing uh, experiences, whether Frank Lampard, what, what Frank Lampard would have to say after the game. And I have to say that he, he seemed like a man who had... Um, radically changed his approach since the previous time that he gave post-match interviews following an Everton defeat, which, if you remember, he suggested the players didn't have the bollocks, or you know, so basically the the most important thing is here: do you have the bollocks to to play? And you know, (laughs) clearly in our case, that's questionable. Um, (laughs) Whereas now, when I I have to admit, I was salivating. When I first saw a quote attributed to Lampard saying, I'm worried about the character of the group. And I thought, oh, I can't wait to see this interview. But actually, when I saw the interview, it was kind of misleading the way that had been, pre- that had been presented. Because basically what Lampard said was, I'm not so worried about personnel, you know, individual personnel. I'm more worried about the character of the group. And what I saw out there today showed, you know, that the group has the group has big character. Gotcha. You know what I mean? So, so he he's looking more to this quality, which was massively in evidence in this unfortunate and un, unlucky two-one defeat. Um, there was no question of criticizing the players. I'm not going to criticize Michael Keane. I'm not going to criticize Richarlison. I can't fault these players," said Lampard. And honestly, it was it was it was a very different approach. Uh, which I have to say, okay, you know that's that's good. Um, it's it was an improvement, I have to say, on the previous on the previous performance. Uh, certainly, it suggested that he maybe had uh, digested some of the feedback and had taken those things on board and had was very scrupulously avoiding saying anything that could be interpreted as uh, blaming the players for this defeat. And uh, he uh, and and on we go we go again. Mm-hmm. Uh, this time Wednesday away to Burnley. I'm glad, Ken. I just feared that people might forget about this game on Wednesday night because it's in the middle of the Champions League quarterfinals. But this mm. is this is peak relegation battle Premier, Premier League football. I know I was saying the lower divisions can be fun too, but I do like the the battle to avoid dropping into the lower divisions. <laughs> it's nearly the best mm. thing about Premier League stuff. So where we, what, uh, Burnley have played the same amount of games and they're four points behind, and they were poor against Man City. It was only 2-0, which makes it look, oh, that was respectable. And they played okay in the second half, but it was one of those ones that was, that was, I was just listening, it was just easy enough for Man City, usual kind of stuff. So they're not really showing anything at the moment, Burnley. But no. then neither are Everton, and if Burnley can win this, they're within a point of them. So this is good stuff. I think, I fancy Everton. Do you? Yeah. Burnley are, are just, <sighs> Burnley are flatlining on. Mm. Burnley have lost their last four without scoring a goal. Yeah. Now, admittedly, they've played Man City. They played Chelsea. I mean, they're most obviously they 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 suffered their regular four 0 defeat to Man City uh, over the weekend. You know, it was a game which uh, which you were covering on. Two 0 defeat. Watching, 
Sorry, it was it was only a two nil. Yeah, defeat. no, that's that's. I mean, they didn't get hockey or anything, anything like that, but they didn't. Why am I worried? It sort of felt like that. <laughs> it was two. <laughs> it was, if you were watching, it certainly felt like it was. It was one nil after a few minutes. It was two nil. Sorry, it's of course, of course. Oh, and it was it was Chelsea who beat them four 0 Of yeah. course. On, uh, or Ken, sorry, was there anything else about the broadcast that struck you? Just kind of maybe, maybe saying the build up in that uh, to the Burnley Man, Man City game. To, I mean, what would have? It's just you were sending some screen grabs into our uh, our WhatsApp group of Sean Dyche. Pep Guardiola and Owen McDevitt in quick succession. And, and I just saw, Kenny Cunningham. And Kenny Cunningham, yes. What's, uh, what, what football men won and all? I don't understand. The, well, just uh, everyone Everyone has like a certain look. You know, there's a certain sort of style going on there between those four individuals. So it is actually quite striking when you see them. Is this bald? One is after another. Here. Everyone had read that, that book, uh, The Game by Neil Strauss, uh, <laughs> where he talks about how to become a pickup artist. And. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and step one is to shave your head. And your balls. Yeah. No messing. Just shave the head and grow a goatee for balance. And Sean Dyche was sure shaving, to grow a goatee. Did Kenny Cunningham have a goatee? I don't think so. No, but but stubbly, stubbliness. You know, yeah. both Guardiola. I mean, Sean Dyche. Dyche has a classic goatee. Yeah, classic goatee, goatee with suit. You uh, had a more relaxed look with. With beard, Pep, obviously artful stubble. Yeah. Uh, how does he keep it that length all the time? It's so nice. It's so nice. And, uh, and Kenny Cunningham, Cunningham uh, similar, similar to Pep. So, uh, but no, it was. It I'm was, glad you're, uh, just, you're watching for the analysis. I should, I should mention Steph Roach was there as well. So hopefully that balances things out a little bit for for you yeah. guys. But good to hear you're listening <laughs> to the actual football. You know that the, what we're saying and not just. How, no, it was good. It was good, it was good but. But then, then Manchester City obviously scored after a couple of minutes, and uh, from then on, we're quite comfortable. In, in, indeed, I, I had a phantom memory of the winning four <laughs> 0 but that's, that may just be because that's always the score when Man City play against Burnley. But just on that, Ken, if if Everton do beat Burnley, right? What had looked like it was going to be a really exciting relegation fight will could mm. almost be dead and buried now by Wednesday night because if they pull that far clear of Burnley, Watford are fairly useless. Uh, they're they're on twenty two points. Burnley on twenty one, and Norwich on eighteen. There'd be a gap from from Watford up. Now it's hard to work out because everyone's played different amounts of games, but there'd be a fair gap then of like six points between Watford in eighteenth and Everton. Yeah, in seventh. Like, are Watford gonna get six more points? Yeah, exactly. You know, regard. I mean, and in fact, they don't even have any games in hand. Burnley, the only ones right right near the bottom that have those games in hand. So it, uh, yeah, it, look, there were there were six there were six or seven teams in it about a week or two ago. But uh, Brentford yeah. have moved out of it now. Newcastle have been out of it pretty much for a while. Mm. Leeds are doing well. And now, if, if Everton can just scrape a win from somewhere against Burnley, they might be all right as well. Yeah, I think I think Everton have got a good chance there because Burnley just. They just have stopped. They they don't score. They let in. They let in lots. I mean, it was usually oh, they're hard to score against. They're not hard to score against. They really aren't. I mean, look how easily Man City opened them up, and then sort of played the game in cruise control after that. And this has happened to them repeatedly. They've won three matches all season um, in the league. That was they beat uh, Brentford uh, at home back in uh, back in what like October, and then they won two matches in a row against Brighton and Tottenham in february and that's it the, they they have they've won three games all season so phew, mm-hmm. i actually think everyone are, are gonna have too much for burnley um you know who else is struggling to score around who graham potter's brighton <laughs> graham potter another brighton. draw for the murph yep 13 now no yeah. 10 now 10 draws no, thirteen. I was right the first time. <laughs> <laughs> Brighton, ten losses though. That's a lot of games to lose. But they have, they've, they have, they have broken the 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 five game streak at least. Six with game another streak, nil all draw. Wasn't it? Was six. It six. six wow. I think it was six. Yeah. But they, um, uh, yeah. I mean, they they've scored one goal in their last seven uh, matches, uh, and okay, they managed to not concede a goal against Norwich, which meant that they uh, stopped that uh, long losing streak. But obviously, the wheels have sort of fallen off. Um, Brighton somewhat and um, well Graham Potter is uh, well he knows exactly where the responsibility lies and it's with the Brighton fans um, the Brighton booed f- off at the end of the game on uh, Saturday of course were they booed off booed off really are you, sure they weren't, are you sure the fans just weren't, are you sure the fans weren't, weren't just shouting shoot 
instead of boo. <laughs> Shoo. Because this is what this is what Graham Potter has um, complained Resign about. Dan Burns is what they were uh, saying mm. at the end. <laughs> no, he says uh, the. So, so Graham Potter said that the uh, that the fans, yeah, you know, the, the fans are great. But then um, uh, the Daily Telegraph, who reported this story, asked him, "You had thirty shots on goal, but only four on target. Not really shots on goal, you know, efforts, I suppose. Thirty attempts, but four on target." He said, "The build-up suggests we're getting there. Of course, the longer you go, you can hear the crowd shoot, shoot, shoot. You know, sometimes that is a challenge for the players. Sometimes there's an opportunity to shoot. Sometimes it's a chance for the block, and then the transition. And sometimes maybe one more pass gets you in a better position. But if you miss the pass, you should have shot. It's one of those things we're going through: a bit of pain and a bit of suffering." It does affect confidence. It affects a little bit of the final bit. So it's the fans' fault that his players keep getting flustered uh, in front of goal. Should we pull the trigger anytime we get within 35 yards of goal, as the supporters seem to be suggesting? Of course not. We know better than that. Uh, but, you know, try try getting that message through the tech skills of these Brighton fans. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's, uh, it's easier said than done. Uh, there's a winning mentality. I can see it in their eyes. They've got glazed eyes. Glazed eyes. Glazed eyes. What I said to him at the end, and I'm, I'm not ashamed to say it, I said, are you ready to win a World Cup? Because we're in it to win it. They've got to trust me, I'm taking these guys into battle. Yeah. And I'm doing my own stapling. Look, we're not getting carried away, but we're now getting to that point now where we are inspiring. Does a, a struggling salesman start turning up on a bicycle? He turns up in a newer car, Perception. So what becomes of you, my love? Along the way, we're going to have fun. I try and laugh several times a day. The Sergeant Major spends all his time training his men to be killers and, and make sure that they arrive for meetings on time and dressed in the right way. He doesn't polish his own boots. The bosses are panicking. They're going, oh, cut back. Non-negotiable. The way we play football is non-negotiable. Miguel Delaney was in Doha covering the World Cup draw for the Independent. How are things, Miguel? Not too bad, too bad. How are you feeling about the competition being held there now that you've actually been and, and visited? I mentioned earlier on that, you, that you've always been big on this point that you have to go and see these things as a journalist. There's no point boycotting and then knowing even less about what you're supposed to be reporting on. So you've been there now, you've had your first first trip ahead of the World Cup. Are you feeling better or worse about the competition being there? <laughs> I, I would say worse. <laughs> uh, and, I, and, and even just on that, so it's not just about um, you should not boycotting these things, but 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 also the fact, like I think, if reporters don't go, if, if at a very basic level with something like this, then like imagine the PO, especially with all the noise around this event and all the public relations. Imagine the image that would have been put out if, if, if journalists didn't go. And even to be honest, you can even see it from some people who did go this week, where there's been talk about like what a nice time we've had. You know, it's in the, it's in the, the Western Bay and in Doha. All these nice five-star hotels, um, but uh, I was, I mean, my, my, my first impression when I got there, I have to say, especially as you fly in and you can actually see what, what the size of Qatar, the size of the area, uh, and you start to get a sense of that. And then when you, when also when you when you, when you start to walk, walk around and try and do kind of basic things like where you're going to go to eat, uh, it strikes me this is way, way, way too small to host a 32-team World Cup. And I mean, myself and Ken have been at the last three, and like they've all been basically on continents, really. You know, South Africa, Russia, Brazil. There was, now, there was an argument they were, they were too big and that necessitated too much travel. But it did mean there was a lot of space. Um, was with this, I mean, I, I, when, I, when I put out the images, or when I, when I put out a few of the comments initially on... On Twitter, I had some people coming back to me who lived in Qatar, and one Irish guy. I started my apologies to him if if he's listening, and I can't, I can't remember his name. He pointed out a kind of a, you know projecting it onto a map of Dublin, which is that most of the tournament is going to be held in an area between Donabate and Bray, mm. uh, which had me kind of conjuring images of Argentina staying at the Carlisle Ground or something like that, or doing training there. <laughs> but um, now I think just because of what Qatar is, which is an autocracy, which is basically you know, building an infrastructure to make this happen. It can almost do what it wants to make it happen. I do think, actually, the World Cup will pass off relatively smoothly, although accommodation and where people go to eat and drink could be an issue, given that 
I mean, that, that main area was pretty, pretty pushed to the limit for something as kind of simple as the draw. But then, of course, you get into the bigger question is to make it happen. I mean, they're, they're really they're building an, a new infrastructure, essentially. And when you walk around now, I mean, the, the Western Bay basically it resembles a building site. And not, like you're, you're, kind of, you're trying to make a simple walk from your hotel over to another hotel because almost everything takes place in hotels. And suddenly you, there's no paths. They don't, it, it doesn't seem to be a, a sidewalk culture. Um, then you, so suddenly you're stumbling into a road, or in this case, um, a construction site. So I've got a few photos that not for Twitter of uh, some journalist colleagues trying to get over fences and things like that. But, but, but of course that leads on to the more serious point in that what do all these construction projects entail? Well, it's the, um, a, a very, very uh, concerning labour situation and uh, multiple issues that haven't been resolved. And, I mean, from, even from, from just walking around and kind of getting a sense of that, I mean, the, the, big, the, the question that really came was, like, is this worth the cost either financially or morally? Well, that, that, I mean, that is an interesting question, but why does that strike you with this World Cup in particular? Um, given that, you know, you know, every World Cup is a waste of money, really? You know what I mean? Is there ever, you know, if you get down to it, can it ever really be justified to, to spend a lot of money on a, on a kind of a... It's been said, certainly, about the last three World Cups, you know, uh, Russia, um, Brazil, uh, South Africa, you know, it's been, it's been made, the, the argument's been made about all of those. So why is this any different? Uh, I think because a number of different factors together, uh, from the, and some of, the, some of them obviously touch on issues with those World Cup. But, um, and actually maybe, of course, what's happened in Russia over the last month, or sorry, what happened with Russia, not in Russia, um, has obviously changed the legacy of that one. And that's, it's basically seen as, it's, it's beyond the political project for Putin, but now it looks like a modern day 1936 Olympics. So, yeah. you know, up, and, up until then, I would have said this was worse. But even then, when you consider the amount of issues the World Cup, first of all, there's the winning of it and all the questions about it and why it's always going to be bound up with Russia uh, 2018. Then there's the motivation for it, which is, you know, it's a phrase we've used in the show a lot, but it's a mass sports watching project. And, and, a tem- and, and, and this is crucial then to the nature of it or the core of the World Cup. It's a mass attempt to integrate into the West without necessarily changing any of the principles or any of the ways that or the criticized ways that Qatar goes about is being it, a state. And you, you've used the phrase to integrate into the West. Is it that? Or is it, is it more a, a kind of a... Um, the impression that I get from it, maybe from... Not, not just from the draw, but just sort of generally from the direction of things over the last while, is a kind of like, yeah, you know, this is sort of the way things are, the way things are now. Um, you know, maybe there's a kind of an attitude maybe from, from Qatar that like you've, Maybe it's time that you stopped sort of lecturing us about how to do things. Like, I, did you see this? Um, well, but that's what I mean. So that's what, that's what in, in the sense about how they want to kind of uh, you know integrate into the West without necessarily changing. I mean, that's that's how sports washing works. That but I mean, because that, that's been such a key in the Abdullah Iba, in the Ibas case, the kind of the, the former media manager that's been um, that, that that's had a prison sentence. Where from all the evidence he put out, the question really came down to: Well, we could spend all this money on actual labour reforms. Or we could spend money on public relations, and they went on the latter, and that, that's an issue that keeps repeating. And I mean, I suppose in terms of wider aims, what's all this about, really? I mean, w- w- one is that, especially when you're in a situation in Qatar, in a, which Qatar is surrounded by, I suppose the most diplomatic way to put it is rivals from the Gulf blockade crisis. Well, I suppose, it, put simply, you're you're a lot less easy to invade, or also. It's a lot more difficult to not care when you have so many relations to the West, and you've you've just as one example you've held a World Cup there. Surely this is this is a display of power and grandeur. Like this is we, like, uh, yeah, you know, I, 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 we are we. This is where the this is where the power is in the world now. This is you know this is where this is where it's at now in the world. Everybody's going to come here and be blown away by the magnificence of what we have created. A show like you've never seen before. This is, I mean, Infantino said it was going to be the greatest World Cup of all time, and the world is going to the world is going to come and the their jaws are going to hit the floor and. They're going to be just astounded at the magnificence of what Qatar has, you know, behold our glory. That's what this is all about. Oh, yeah, I don't deny that that's the case either. But even if, if even if you take that prospect true to its, you know, logical extension, it's it also part of that 
is again wowing the West and ensuring that your place in the West is secure. Especially it's just, it's about the West. So it's about wowing the whole the whole world, surely, of which the West is 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 a you know is an increasingly uh, less uh, less sort of uh, dominant. Uh, you know, less. It, it's just one one poll among many, as, as we. Well, was it not, was it not just last week? Of course, the, the, or two weeks ago, Johnson was basically trying to convince Qatar to be, become oil supplier of last Be- begging, resort. Begging Qatar for begging. begging Qatar for gas. That, that's 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 the West. You know what I mean? Like there the, the, there is a there is a sort of attention here, isn't there? Between on the one hand, sort of um, saying, "Oh, you know, you're, you're lecturing Qatar about values and so on," but like at the end of the day, it's it's all going to be like. Please give us the gas. And Qatar knows this, don't they? There was, you know, this is. I think this might have been what you were alluding to earlier, Ken. The, the, and I don't know if you agree with this, Miguel. But Barney Roney was writing that he feels there's been a change in the mood music. Qatar is done with saying sorry. It has been instead getting more alpha, flaring its neck muscles, snapping its tail across those gleaming yeah. new built stadiums. Is that the sense you get that that Qatar, more so than some other regimes, has at least in some way listened to the concerns? You know, we're listening to what you have to say, and we're working on labour reforms and all that kind of stuff. Whereas now it's like, listen, you're all over here. Nobody's boycotting it. Uh, everybody needs our oil. So you know, suck it up, everybody. Yeah, I would agree with that. Uh, and I, I made a, a kind of a, a tangential reference to their previous attitude on, on, on Twitter. The other day. I made screeds of criticism, which led to me being criticised for being, for being sports-watched. But I think that was absolutely true. And if you talk to human rights groups who've worked over here, they would say that generally, out, out, of, the, out of the entire area and all these states, we would accuse of sports-washing, specifically, specifically Saudi Arabia only Newcastle. And I, I think actually more relevantly, uh, the UAE uh, and within that... Abu Dhabi owning Manchester City, Qatar were the um, the state or emirate more willing to at least say you know acknowledge yes we can change, whereas yeah that's that's definitely shifted uh, in the last forty eight hours and there's almost been a standard line we saw at the Southgate uh, we saw it when um, the, the the head of the Norwegian Federation uh, Lisa Klavenes mm-hmm. spoke out where the line has basically been educate yourself. Uh, and actually, just um, I suppose without going into too much detail, even some of the uh, and that's been the, the Qatar I, line. Sorry, so you're saying the, the, the line come back from the Qataris now is yeah. educate yourself. If, if you're criticising what what our labour forms are, are, you know, our views on various things, you, you, you're the ones who don't know what's going on here. Educate yourselves. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and I think that's completely connected to the fact now that as the draw did on Friday, it made this World Cup a reality. And like this is happening now. So and we're now what. After 12 years, we're over 90% of the way into, quote-unquote, Qatar's World Cup journey. So they probably can afford to now be a little bit more abrasive about it. But it's interesting, yeah, you, just that, that, that line of educate yourself. Um, and again, it's, it's, it's hard to know how you couldn't educate yourself more than to, talking to all the, these actual human rights groups working here. But another one you heard a lot, and without going into too much detail, that was also, I think, why the three, day there, three days there was quite instructive, because from knowing a few people who lived there and being introduced to a, a, a few other social groups that lived there, um, my, two of my articles were put to um, some people who lived there, and <laughs> they, were, they, were, they were really ready to argue the point. But, well, but yeah. a constant lot... A, a, a constant line is basically, you know, you don't understand the nuance, which may, and it may well be true. There's a lot of nuance in this situation. That's undeniable. Uh, and certainly there has been some progress. Human rights groups would say that progress is superficial. You only have to look at the 10 questions that Human Rights Watch put up before the draw on Friday. There's so many unresolved issues. Uh, with migrant workers and then we come to the core of it we come to the core question and this ties in that's something that, that Ken mentioned earlier about how many World Cups are actually like this well even if you've made progress like, why do you get to, to host a World Cup just because you've made some progress surely the threshold for hosting one of these tournaments especially given the immense potential power of these tournaments exactly what we've been talking about for the last few minutes the threshold should be much higher uh, uh, it did get me thinking as well, just on that question, especially because uh, m- myself and Ken, we're, we're both at the last few, and the last few have, have um, disputed legacies. What, what tournaments could you say actually had, or I suppose specifically what recent World Cups could you say, specifically had uh, oh, a net positive effect without the same questions over the use of public money? And it, usually it's not as... Um, 
it's not quite as the questions aren't quite as severe as what's going on in Qatar, but it's more about um, whether they could be you know divested into other areas. Sorry, uh, diverted into other areas. <laughs> I have to say, I found myself thinking that that was the case with virtually every European Championships and every World Cup right up to South Africa. Really, I mean, what the, the, the actually what about the, the, the leg- two thousand and six uh, World Cup in Germany? I mean, I know they got it by yeah, bribery. Yeah. Sure, they got it by bribery, but <laughs> that wasn't a uh, you know it, it seemed yeah, as though yeah, it, it had a positive. So, and you'd probably say you say the same with 2002. Well, I wasn't in 2002. You were there, Ken. Yeah. I, like I think that, that was maybe a little bit more disputed at the time. But 98, 94, Italian 90 actually was seen as a case where it was it, it, was, it was actually a necessary expenditure of, of public money, given how dilapidated some of the stadiums had become. Um, and, and 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 people, I, I know there's an obvious response to all this that this is a very Western-centric view, but given given FIFA's stated aims. Given that the right to democratic expe- expression is is a pretty f- fundamental human right, there is now, and also given how autocracies or flawed democracies or hybrid regimes are more likely to specifically use World Cups as questionable political statements, there is an argument that you know the the uh, the requirements for these tournaments should be further improved. That you can really only stage one if you are a functioning democracy. Yeah, although you know, even even that, like, is is, is an interesting question because, like, what is a functioning democracy? I mean, uh, you know, if you look at the democracy index you've been you've been uh, talking about, there are only twenty one so called full democracies in the world. Really? Of which, yeah, of which Ireland is Ireland is one. Uh, I want you to be honest. Although there's plenty of people who will tell you that Irish democracy is a sham. It, it's, it's just a, it's a kabuki pantomime. You know, the, what, what I'm saying is even in even in one of these these rare uh, full so called full democracies or people who'll tell you it's all it's all a lot of uh, bullshit. Um and another uh, another fifty three flawed democracies, which includes people, uh, countries like you know France. Apparently, uh, I'm not sure what the what the issue is, but the majority the majority of countries basically are not democracies. Uh, so if you were to sort of say, well, the World Cup should only go to these um, to this type of uh, countries with this type of government, well, that wouldn't be very democratic. From you know, from the point of view of FIFA, which is a you know a globe-spanning organization, which which includes you know perfect democracies like the Republic of Ireland, uh, <laughs> Ireland I should say, and and also flawed uh, states such as France uh, and uh, Qatar and North Korea. With a specific issue, and especially if FIFA is interested in these wider aims, which it should be, and and given the way we've been criticising these last few World Cups, whatever about the this process not necessarily being de- democratic it's the way these world cups and these tournaments are being used in undemocratic ways by ultimately as we said at the top as attempts to, to, to flex flex the muscles or you know flare their power um through the grand exhibition of a world cup with the, with the most classic recent example of that being russia 2018 now which you know i, I think that that's actually going to be an interesting discussion over the next few months especially as we come to the anniversary Given and given it's in the countdown to Qatar, and given what's happening uh, with the invasion of Ukraine, because uh, it's something that hasn't really been touched on too much yet. Bar- Barney discussed a little bit in the Guardian, but how we now see the 2018 World Cup. Yeah. Whereas, I mean, I think I think you do start to get into interesting discussions there, and how you know the people of a state are obviously different to the state. Something that has come up in the conversation around the invasion of Ukraine. Yeah. But ultimately, it's hard not to see that World Cup, even if it was obviously relatively superficial next to what's actually happened in reality. But it's all part of Putin's vision of greater Russian greatness. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's, it's, I do sort of think about that. You know, I was obviously at this, you know, having kind of uh, like read about the 36 Olympics and sort of wondered what it would be like to have been there. I never realized, well, I was actually at quite a similar event. Uh, yeah, it seemed it seemed quite normal to me, you know. At the time, I didn't really, I wasn't really. Uh, I mean, I, rem- I remember, I remember thinking it was funny that that uh, Vladimir Putin didn't have the balls to turn up to watch Russia be thrashed by Spain in the second round and thus missed the absolute peak of the tournament. 
uh, from Russia's point of view. It was uh, Dmitry Medvedev was the top Russian official uh, who actually was at the game. I guess they were expecting to lose. They ended up winning on penalties and there was no sign of the president. Yeah, and even then, I remember kind of thinking, like, and, and like, like, this is something else that has a very different perspective, but you'd go to somewhere like Nizhny Novgorod and you'd see these kind of, you know, jumpers with uh, openly on sale of Putin, like, sitting on top of a, a lion or whatever it was. The kindest president. Um, yeah, yeah, all this, and it was hard to know, is this sincere, is this a piss take? Um, and even even that looks different. But but again, we come to, kind of, and I, I do think this is relevant to Kistar as well, whereas... Yes, the overall reasons of the World Cup, or sorry, the overall reason that World Cup was held, mean it shouldn't have been held. And yet, separate to that is still the fact, like, you go to somewhere like Rostov, and I think all the more so because there is actually uh, an existing football culture within these within these countries or in these cities, and they're absolutely delighted to have you. And it, it, like, it, these are authentic emotions separate from what the state wants to do. And it's something that, that came up a lot, actually, in the, um, in the last few days, particularly when I spoke to some people who live in Qatar, where their, their big argument is, well, first of all, they, they, they would see a lot of the criticism, particularly from British media, uh, as automatically... Yeah, well, and automatically anti-Arab and hypocritical, yes. Um, and, and, and this was something that actually... Infantino himself put up as a little, what I felt was a little bit of a straw man, which is that, you know, people are saying that we, we shouldn't host the World Cup in an Arab country. I don't think anyone, no one has said that. I think mm. that's actually one of the few positives of this World Cup. And it's something that the people in Qatar are pushing, that more should be made of that. But again, it becomes about, and that ties in my point about kind of the joy around Russia. But again, it becomes the balancing act of that and that what is I suppose you would say one positive against the many many negatives like the fact that people have died in the construction of this tournament and for me that just it it doesn't add up it's unjustifiable to have this World Cup in Qatar yeah well the the other um, issue obviously that was being raised uh, and I saw the BBC interviewing the is it is it the organizing committee CEO Nasser al-Khalafi but you know it, it was to do with his his interview to do with Gareth Southgate's comments you know where he was saying Gareth Southgate needs to educate himself but you know there was this whole question of um if you know uh, the I think the, the way the BBC interviewer said it was you know maybe not all of the England fans would be welcome here you know for instance you know if you were LGBT fans or whatever and and Nasser al-Khalafi kind of said look you know can you book a hotel room with your friend you know, well then, you know, what's what's the problem? Basically, this was the sort of, this was the kind of um, actually like like homosexuality is criminalized in Qatar, but they were sort of saying this isn't going to be a, this is not going to be an issue during the tournament. I mean, is this uh, is this also your impression? Um, well, I mean, I think Adam Crafton did an excellent piece on that in the Athletic uh, in the last few weeks, pointing out how you know a, a lot of uh, bodies have got on to Qatar looking for assurances and in some cases weren't responded to. Uh, again, it's one of those, because I was discussing this with a few people who were including some people basically offering Qatar a spin on it and they would say, oh, oh actually, I mean, and w- one of the arguments you hear put forward is that on, on one side there is, which is the most important state side, you would say, uh, that there are certain laws which is basically to keep the traditional element of society comfortable with the state they're living in, and which, which refers to, uh, to homosexuality. But then the reality is that people can actually walk around and book rooms and nothing would happen. But I mean, again, if, if we even have to look at it in those terms, is that really good enough? Again, this, it reminds me of Russia, again, this, this situation. You know, where in, in Russia is, is a different case where you don't have, you, you don't actually have, it's not, it's not a crime to be uh, gay in Russia, but they do have these rules against, uh, you know, uh, propaganda about non-traditional relationships or whatever they call it. And you can see that very clearly in Russia. They've, you know, from say, if you look at the recent uh, speeches by Putin and this, he's talking about like uh, 
L- he, he's taken against LGBT ideology. You know what I mean? This is one of this is one of the things that that uh, Russia is now crusading against. You know the encroachment of this ideology. You can see it in, in Hungary. Um, you know the the Orban has just had a massive electoral win, and this is one of his one of his main things is you know against LGBT ideology. You know, so this is kind of a thing uh, that you see in different countries, and, and maybe the question here is. Uh, even Norway, like it was the Norwegian FA president who made a speech and she referred specifically to, to these questions. But even Norway ultimately wasn't prepared to boycott the World Cup for this reason. You know, uh, they, they sort of said, well, you know, it would be better for us just to sort of make a, make a point about it or whatever. Now, Norway obviously didn't ultimately qualify for the World Cup. But as long as you've got a situation where, where like countries are just complaining about something but not actually prepared to boycott... Then yeah. it's the question, like how? Well, how seriously are you are you really taking this? Well, I think there's two separate sides to that. I mean, the first is that for me, again, it should be non-negotiable. Really, if any, I mean, given what these World Cups are, which is supposed to be festivals celebrating humanity, yeah. if any, if any single part of humanity doesn't feel welcome at an event, it shouldn't be taking place there. Uh, and that and, and that does, doesn't just apply to the question of our homosexuality. It's even I was talking to some some colleagues, some journalist colleagues who were there of uh, South Asian descent, uh, and they were wondering, like they they were quite conscious of it, given how uh, South, South Asians generally form a lot of a lot of the migrant workforce who are essentially treated. I mean, the the UN report last year stopped short of calling uh, Qatar an apartheid state in that regard but did point out um, that there's basically institutionalised racism. And, and again, this should be the sort of issue that is an immediate non-starter for something, or for what the World Cup is supposed to be. I suppose, but now that it's happening, we have the second issue there, as you mentioned, which is over whether we should, um, we should boycott it. Uh, from talking to human rights groups, it's an interesting because I suppose generally, I mean, I'm, I'm, people can, I suppose, just have a... People can and do have a lot of uh, debates about the merits of certain re- human rights groups as well. But ultimately, these are people on the ground uh, who are most concerned with these questions, and we should probably be listening to them on how to deal with this. Um, n- their advice, as yet, is not to boycott. Uh, now, that's possible because they, they, they do realise that boycotts actually aren't going to change much in this. It, it will happen regardless. And, and And the biggest issue here is probably that all the TV stations have agreed massive deals. This is going to be broadcast around the world no matter what. So in that reality, it's probably better to deal with the situation and try and affect something rather than just, um, you know, uh, try, take a minimal, dent to, to, a minimal dent to it through boycott. That's how I would perceive it anyway. Um, and, and to be fair, for the mo- even though there are ultimately going to be so many criticisms of Qatar that are left unresolved, um, after this World Cup, they're not they're not going to be fixed in 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 the next nine months. Um, they, they would argue that they can make that there can be change made, and one of one of the one of the easiest for say those who attend, or one of the core issues that human rights groups would point to in particular, particularly the case of Fair Square, is that anyone going to the World Cup, and particularly the players and managers, where they have genuine leverages, they can ask for two things. One is. Uh, investigation into migrant worker deaths two is compensation for the families of victims that's something the players can call for and so far it hasn't actually happened I, I actually I put it to Greg Berhalter the US manager in the mix zone on Friday and he kind of in, in, in the sort of t- in the sort of tone that anyone around the tournament is taking right now said oh well we'll they're all basically appealing to this we'll, we want to address all, all the questions at the right time and take the right move that suits us which is basically the stock answer but that is, I mean, for me, it does feel as if this is something that, that there should be a, a move behind it. And, and really, uh, you know, people like Harry Kane and Southgate and Berhalter are appealing, appealing for time and, and how they want to talk about these issues. But time is actually now running out. Uh, we know, you know, there are clear cases that have been made here like this, where the players can simply ask for two things. And really, it's, it, it, it's time to do that. Uh, but of course, one of the issues now is that, um, and this, I suppose this is actually another reflection of the modern World Cup and where we are with the game, uh, that really, we're probably not going to be talking about Qatar now for what, until maybe, maybe the next international break, but really not until the countdown properly starts. 
Miguel, listen, thanks for bringing us through all that great stuff. Thanks, Miguel. Cheers, lads. Thank you. I said, Karen, it's Richard Keyes. Prehistoric banter. Please. It was just banter. It is not acceptable in a modern world. Do you have any regrets? None. There are some dark forces at work here. The eyes have it. The eyes have it. So Champions League this week. Kenny, which one? Which tie is is doing it for you? Benfica, Liverpool, City, Atletico Madrid, Chelsea versus Real Madrid. Oh, Real City, Atletico Madrid. City, City Atletico Atletic Madrid. Yeah. yeah, big time. Because I, I mean, I say that like I think I, you, you sort of look at the Liverpool Benfica game. You think, well, if Liverpool don't come through that, that's that will be a bitter disappointment for them. But I I feel like they should, uh, you know, they should do it. Uh, Chelsea against Real Madrid. I, I feel like Chelsea should be. I know well, Chelsea have literally just lost four. <laughs> <to Brentford. laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but like I, I don't rate I don't rate Real Madrid. You know Exclusive. I think that they, you know they they beat PSG, which gave us maybe a false idea of how good they are. PSG had a kind of a nervous breakdown. When you look at that that um, tie, it was between the two teams that. Uh, covered the least distance out of all of the teams in the in the last sixteen. You know what I mean? It was like the slowest time. Like when Luka Modric is is emerging and, and running the show in like um, the the last uh, twenty minutes of the game of your hundred and eighty minute tie, then you can only conclude that like this is not a very high energy game. <laughs> and uh, I just think that Chelsea. I mean, I know they've they've got a few issues. Obviously, when you lose four one to Brentford, that's not that's not cool. I see Thomas Tuchel has split with his wife as well, which is, of course, difficult. Right. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, they they beat them. Uh, they beat them last season. I think they're good enough to do so again. Um, but but the reason that I'm more interested in City against Atletico is just because of the fact that it's Guardiola against Simeone, with uh, the Liverpool game in between them. Yes. So, and and you know that Atletico. Like the, the, so, it's it's a because it's it's a clash of styles that makes it interesting. Even though Atletico have sort of been moving away from, you know, or supposedly been sort of moving away from from all of that, but I don't think they'll. I think they'll probably be going back to the basics <laughs> a little bit when they play against Pep Guardiola and Manchester City. Um, so while I think City definitely are are vastly superior to Atletico Madrid, um, that doesn't necessarily mean they beat them in a in a knockout game, um, which is why I think that's the most interesting one. Sounds good. You've sold it. Thanks, Ken. Thank you, Owen. Thanks, Karen. Thank you, Karen. Thank you, Owen. Thank you, Ken. Thanks, Mill, for listening. Hope you enjoyed the show. We'll talk to you during the week. Fantastic. It's the opposite of that, it's to persuade the world outside of that. That's why sport's important.